Philosophy. Descartes. Debate. The Mep Report. Mep Report. Mep Report. The awesomest discussion podcast in the history of the human species. Oh, yeah! Let me tell you of an interview with an old man emu. He's got a beak and feathers and things, but the poor old fella ain't got no wings. Aren't you jealous of the wedge-tailed eagle? I'm better to da 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 Well, the eagle's flying round and round to keep my two feet firmly on the ground. Now, I can't fly, but I'm telling you, I can run the pants of a kangaroo. But I don't He can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can run the pants of a kangaroo. All right, in that case, welcome to Mep Report number 154, December 14th, 2017. The story is remotely along there edition, and so is Lulu. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our wonderful... And uh, we are all here. The guy, the gang is all here joining us. And as you can hear in the background, um, Russ's uh, daughter is making her presence felt uh, and will continue to do so because... She, she is upset that she is one of, along with the three of us, the last four people on Earth who have not yet seen the new Star Wars movie. Oh, um, my God. Even though it yeah. We, it is, are, we can't true. see it. We're hoping that when we travel to the East Coast that her grandparents can babysit her and give us an opportunity to sneak into the movie. Yep. Same. We have to figure out how to get away from uh, from Kaylin for like two and a half hours the <laughs> week it goes. Because we I was really like, I was like, I, I was like, maybe. And I'm like, no, I can't. I can't in good conscience bring my 18 month old to a last jedi showing oh no people would would lynch you if, yeah. if there was a baby interrupting their first viewing of this they movie. would not you just have him dressed up as bb-8 or something and it's fine and yeah, they'll, and they'll be true. like well occasionally gurgle or something but bb-8 makes random noises at the wrong time too. but like fine. how many times can i use the line judge him by your size his size do you <laughs> how many times can i do that and get away <laughs> with it you know they'd be uh, like probably oh. a lot yeah, people are I, really into this stuff. Reviews have been very good for it, though. Like, re, like reviews of Last Jedi are running very high. Like, like ninety. Well, I'm sorry, it's Ryan Johnson, like maybe the second or third best director in America. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's so. funny, you know, for all of the agita, and I understand where it comes from, but for all the agita over a company like Disney, and Disney obviously has its problems. I'm here to tell you that um, this movie, it sounds like we'll obviously all see for ourselves when we go see it. But also Coco, which my daughter and I watched. Coco is oh, amazing. It is so good. And I was like, you know what? Like you, so you've seen it, right, Story? So Yeah, and I had very low expectations. Like usually, I mean, I am all about Pixar, other right. than The Incredibles, which is rebooting, which is terrible, and that's bad. But like I love Pixar, and I almost like was like, I don't know, this theme, like there's a so dog. Good. It just I just like was not feeling it and that and I'm just like I'll go because it's Pixar and I could be wrong but like I was I just had no expectations compared to like Inside Out or something which I was really jazzed about right and I loved it I adored loved it loved it not recommended enough I like, totally agree it was, 
I totally agree. It actually, Pixar is, is rapidly becoming a company that is one of my most admired creative forces in the world. Like I, I like Coco, not only, not only is it dealing with serious themes, not only does it deal with the question of death, it deals with age. It connects grandkids and grandparents, which is not your common thing that you see in most movies these days. It's gorgeously animated. It's a, it's a movie about music. Yeah. It's got wonderful music. I mean, there's just, there's just no, drawbacks to it like i it's it's wonderfully voiced like my daughter and i were just like and, wow and along cool. with inside out and a couple of other things you know not every pixar movie is like this they don't always get it but it was it was just a very original plot yes you know it does yes. not feel like a kid's movie plot as it unfolds like is absolutely everything unpredictable not necessarily but it you know like inside out which i keep comparing it to but that it's just is also very tremendous. very original yeah, which is tremendous, like both visually and, you know, uh, developmentally original. And that's... that's I completely really agree. Fantastic. I completely agree. It's, yeah. I mean, it, and it was, I mean, I did see how the ending was. I mean, I, I, I figured out what was going on well into it. Yeah, by the very so end. Well like, there's a lot of things along the way. Oh, so. yeah. And it's so well executed. Yeah. And, it's, and, it's, and, it's theme, and it's also thematically an important message. It's also important politically. Like, there's, there's just no drawbacks. I, every, everything, it's all like a native, it's all a Latino cast. Like, everything about it. I'm just like, ugh. So good. So yeah, Russ, I, I recommend it highly. Story and I, MEP listeners, this is good stuff. Yeah. You should go check it out. It has two emus up and, and two three. Yeah, yeah they're, they're so good. And Disney in general, man. I mean, like Disney, Moana was tremendous too. I mean, like Disney in general is really good. Like I, I've been very impressed with them. So Did you guys know that Moana is Lulu's favorite movie? Um, of all time. Okay. Dude, Moana, I cry every single time. She, she probably Moana, like, watches it about four to five times a week, I think, on average. It's, fu- it's, it's freaking it's phenomenal. It's like Dumbo was for me. It's like Dumbo. <sighs> yeah. So Dumbo. good. We, we was, caught her singing yeah. along with the... She's nine months old. We caught her singing along with one of the major theme songs. The other night, we're like, what? <laughs> How does she know And she calls me. What? <laughs> Another movie with the grandmothers involved. Yeah, it's so so good. And speaking of gorgeously animated, the uh, the the um, lava goddess and uh, the is also beautifully animated in that movie. So plus, I mean, and it's whatever. It's Lin Manuel Miranda. Like, what's not to like about it? Like, it just, yeah, you know, I just learned so that he actually wrote this before he wrote Hamilton, but because of the excruciatingly long production process, it came out after he was already super famous from Hamilton. But that it wasn't the case when he wrote it. True, but I mean, he'd he already was, won a Tony for that other thing, right? Right, right, for yeah. In the Heights, for In yeah. the Heights. But, yeah. but that's true. But his singing of it was more recent because he didn't think he was going to be singing it. And then they listened to it and are like, no, can we just do that? He's like, what? I was just doing like a demo. He's like, they're like, no, we want that to be the thing. And it was great, like, because it's, it's him, so it's great. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, big, big ups to Coco. We, we love it. I love uh, original. I love original sort of stuff that happens these days. Like, for example, gentlemen, uh, having a pedophile defeated in Alabama. That's another original thing that doesn't usually happen. Usually, if you're an Alabamian, Alabamian uh, pedophiles are just great, but not, not this time. So at least, at least evil lost a little bit. Just, just, a, just a touch. Yeah. Just well, I knew, I knew this. I, I, I will claim credit because I definitely predicted that this was going to happen, in part because I was in Louisiana when David Bitter lost to a quote-unquote Democrat who is like, you know, all about prayer in schools and prayer before every meeting. And I know, I know, I know. But, but, but he lost 
because because enough evangelicals actually hold to their values that if you've had a sex scandal, they're like, nope, we're not we're not down with it. So um, yeah, so not uh, not terribly surprising. Although I will say, as I have also said, the one thing that I think could have foiled my prediction was if Al Franken had not resigned. If Al Franken were still a senator, I think that. Could yeah, have I do wonder about thing. that because of how how relatively close it was. Um, yeah. It, it was it, it really you know it's interesting it's it's if you look all around with everything from Weinstein and all the other stuff and it's hard not to see the election of Trump having galvanized a lot of this but it is amazing what a sea change this is where all of it is just happening like Tavis Smiley uh, you know Garrison Keeler Harvey Weinstein Dustin Hoffman now um, uh, Kevin Spacey of course like all of these people just like like flies uh charlie rose which good because what a self-satisfied terrible interviewer charlie rose is uh but you know beyond the fact that he's also <laughs> matt lauer who can't suck enough um so yeah i think i think this is good before we go any further we should actually double check i just want to go on record and saying that somehow in my 45 years of life i have managed to get to this point uh, never having even come close to sexually harassed anyone. So since apparently for some people that's a really high bar to clear, I'm glad to tell you all that I've managed to clear that bar. Have you gentlemen managed to clear the bar of not sexually harassing a woman to this, uh, anyone, woman or man, to this point in your lives? Because I'm happy to say that I do not have that problem. Is any anyone else? Yeah, I've never, I've never harassed anyone. I mean, like, I'm so far on the opposite side of the spectrum that I don't know. I've got, there's a lot of stuff going on, you guys. I'm, in, I'm inside the L.A. comedy community, which I feel like is very much the front lines of all this stuff that we've been reading about nationally. So, um, so tell us all the secrets, like, well, as a, the front lines. I, I mean, I'm, I, okay, so I'm not going to talk about specific people or specific events too much because sure. um, whatever legal ramifications there are about these things uh, or the theaters that they're attached to. But I, I will say that, so... The way it began, and it began, gosh, maybe a year or two ago, like a while ago already, um, with women getting together in the context of a private Facebook group to out uh, a few like serious predators that existed in the community. One guy who had raped someone, another one who was just kind of serially uh, harassing, molesting, using his position as a coach to get with people, like that kind of thing. Um, so... This group came together, they, you know, pooled their stories, they handed them over to the leadership of a couple different theaters, and both of these guys were, like, summarily banned for life from all of the major comedy clubs, and it was a huge victory. Okay. Um, as it's gained momentum, though, and again, I'm, like, right there and listening to everyone involved from every angle about what's going on, it seems to have, A, you know, picked up steam, um, and B, like, obviously there are only so many rapists and abusers that exist regularly in the community. <laughs> so God. then inevitably the discussion goes further and further into gray areas. So obviously the first people that are booted are obviously people who have committed crimes and should not be in the comedy community. And then it goes to harassment and then from harassment to misconduct and then from misconduct to this person made me uncomfortable and I don't think they should be able to perform comedy ever again. And so it gets to the point where, and you know, the way that this discussion is going, especially on the grassroots level, like there is no gradation. There's no such thing. There's no like you spoke inappropriately to a person once versus this person molested five people. Like it doesn't matter what part of the spectrum that you're on. Um, 
the, the consequence is the same, which is banishment in this case. Because uh, okay. it doesn't seem like, for the most part, this is a legal thing. It seems like this is uh, a group that, you know, the, the consequence is that your reputation is destroyed and you have to stop working wherever this happens, which okay. I think is pretty much equivalent to what's happening in politics. It's not like they're, some of them might be being sued civilly, but I don't think any criminal it's mostly, thing. It's mostly blacklisting, right? I mean, essentially. Yeah, but, yeah. You know. this is this is Story's age-old tool of shame uh, being used, you know, with the full amount of leverage. Um, and so, from my perspective, like, you know, as someone who supports 95% of what this group has done, I also oppose 5% of what this group has done because I know very, a couple of people very, very well who were not accused of hurting anybody or assaulting anybody or harassing anybody or any sexual misconduct, but they definitely were considered unattractive and they tried to hit on women in the community being unattractive. And so women collected their stories about how they didn't like being hit on by this person. And of course, if anyone had asked them not to do it, they would stop doing it. It wasn't like they were going beyond social mores. They were just trying to hit on girls who didn't want it. And so when those stories were brought in front of the collective community of women, the collective community of women found it very easy to just say, yeah, I think these people should be abolished from the community and we should blacklist them. Even though what they did is, you know, very far away from a crime. It's can't even qualify as misconduct, which seems to be the lowest level of thing that which we've heard about. Um, well, wait, though, but specify this for me. I mean, because when you say hit on, yeah. um, I mean, now granted, hit on in our day, in our day, I mean, growing up hit on would not have been something that would have been seen as a problem, really, but it, it really does kind of have a negative connotation. Like this isn't someone asks somebody out and they, they don't like that they're being asked out, and so they're calling them out. Is it? I mean, no, is it I think so. Uh, in one instance, this was a f uh, someone that I used to work with who was, in general, a beloved member of the community, um, and his name came up in the context of this group in, in that it was like, uh, he made me feel uncomfortable one time because he put his hand on my shoulder. And again, like, so it's hitting on, it's also physical contact. But again, if anyone had said, I prefer you don't put your hand on my shoulder, he would have been like, I'm so sorry, I, I apologize. Like he was not predatory at all, but he definitely, you know, he would, he would hit on girls from time to time. And so in the terms of the group, a few of them said they made him feel uncomfortable. They, you know, probed to see if there was any stories of anything that he did that was worse or more tangible and there wasn't. But even just the mention of his, of his name in that context was enough to have him lose his job as an improv coach and then uh, unrelated to that, he ended up dying, you know, like six or seven months after this all happened. So for us who are his friends, it was very magnified in that, like here was this great guy who was a coach that we worked with. We used to see him at our house because he would come over to our house to coach. And then some people in this group used the fact that his name came up as leverage to get him fired from this job mostly because they didn't like him as a coach, not because they felt like he was, you know, an abusive presence. They just didn't like him as a coach. And they, they happily found political leverage in his name showing up in this group enough to get him fired. I see. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I'm, I'll be interested to hear what story thinks about this. I, my feeling is that the, the pendulum, there's no question that there's going to come a stage where the pendulum will have swung far enough that there is going to be the danger of um, 
you know, the witch hunt. I mean, there is, there is the danger of people getting called out um, on the carpet without evidence and where manipulation is going to occur. But I guess the problem is that, and this, this is, as is typical, this is what happens when our gender gets involved with things um, <laughs> because men screw it up so badly that the pendulum has to swing a very long way, it seems to me, back towards belief. It seems like it is moving in the direction of believing the women now, but it's been so far from that for so very long. You know, like my mother went through harassment. I, you know, it, it, it's, it's astonishing to me, like still to this day, you know, walking with, uh, you know, a friend of mine and having people, having guys driving by, you know, rolling down the windows and catcalling. It's, it's like, I'm almost like, yeah, that's the ha-ha thing from like the 70s, right? Like like the, the, the sort of joke about what's, what sex is. No, like 2017, catcalling remains a thing now to an attractive woman because who happens to be who's wearing a sweatshirt and sweatpants. Like is the opposite. First of all, it has nothing to do with what she's dressed, but I'm just saying like even dressed as unprovocatively as conceivably possible doesn't make a difference. Catcalls still happen. So it seems to me that the pendulum so swung in one's direction that it's going to take a long time, it seems to me, for the pendulum to swing so back, so so far back the other way, that we're going to be. I mean, I feel, of course, I do feel bad for if your friend kind of got, you know, taken advantage of because of this situation. But it seems like that's going to be very much in the minority of cases, given what the current circumstances have been for so long. You know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I agree with you that it's the minority of cases. And I think on balance, this movement has done a lot of good. Um, I don't think that the movement, however, is capable of parsing the difference between these two things. I just think not. that the language possibly surrounding it makes it impossible for anyone who has these allegations put upon them to ever exonerate themselves. It's impossible because there's no process. There's no let's look over the facts. Let's review each complaint. Like none of that exists. It's just... Some people say some things and then somebody gets, somebody's life gets destroyed. And, you know, even if that is an effective mechanism in however many percent of the cases, like it still provides no ability for anyone to stand up for themselves or to stand up for friends of theirs who they feel like were wrongfully associated with this kind of stuff. Like, let me give you one more example because this happened recently again. And I was very, very angry about this because again, there's no recourse There's nothing you or anyone else could do about this. It just happened and this person's life is ruined. So uh, I have another friend who's a stand-up and an improviser. Um, He's a really great guy. Now, I am 100% aware of how many people are friends of terrible people who think that they're great people. Like, I'm totally aware that that's that's going on. That like, oh, he was my friend. I could never imagine he could participate in this kind of behavior. Like, yes, that happens all the time. Um, You know, I think I'm a decent judge of character. So I would be even more surprised to find out that my friend had participated in behavior that would associate him with this kind of thing. So nevertheless, uh, a woman came forward with a story about him uh, from five years ago that they were friends. He was hitting on her in his apartment um, and he made her feel uncomfortable. Basically like he, he gave her a hard sell and she said no. And then eventually she left and she felt, and again, there was no, he never touched her. He never said anything verbally abusive. He obviously never assaulted her, but he definitely made her feel uncomfortable because she felt like he was unattractive and his hitting on her was unwelcome. So she was upset by this. He tried to apologize a bunch of times. 
Um, years later during the, this, you know, five, this was five years ago. So during the whole hashtag me too phenomenon, you guys are familiar with this? Yeah, sure. Okay. So part of Me Too phenomenon, I don't know if you saw any of these, were kind of a hashtag, I did it, where some guys would say, hey, I participated in this terrible culture by doing the following thing. Oh, and they would, no, I didn't see that. They would, so that, this happened, you know, certainly not as much as Me Too, which was a huge phenomenon. So the, the girl um, who he tried to apologize to asked him for a public apology, and he said, okay. So he, he wrote up a thing about how he inadvertently intimidated her and he'd felt horrible about it since and he'd learned how to grow from that experience and like become a better person, et cetera, et cetera. And there were a bunch of comments on his Facebook that were like, you know, lauding him for, for admitting what he did and trying to use it to improve his, his personality and his life. And people in the women's group didn't like the fact that he was getting congratulated for apologizing for this thing. So they basically authored their own apology on his behalf, which was more abusive and terrible. Uh, he started getting harassed on Facebook. He deactivated his Facebook. And while his Facebook was turned off, somebody photoshopped a fake status of him threatening to rape a girl on Facebook. And so that got circulated, and then he started getting death threats on Facebook. Um, and, you know, his family saw it, and they're asking him, why are you threatening to rape people on Facebook? And obviously he's like, well, there's, you know, there's no punctuation in this obviously I didn't write it but regardless like that's an awful horrible thing for him to have to deal with um and so then he basically at that point was like okay well I guess my comedy career is over I'm gonna move back across country and leave the city because I'm never gonna get booked again given the the lynch mob that was created out of this fake stuff and so you know I'm a good friend of his so I watched this happen there's nothing anybody can do about it there's no authority there's no group there's no one who will listen to the guy who says that they just photoshopped a fake status of me threatening people. You know, he was just given death threats and he has to leave now. And I, again, I grant you, this is in the minority, but this is also the dark side of what's going on right now, which is that there is a lynch mob mentality. And look, whenever you hand over this kind of responsibility to a large group of people, you're going to get some mob behavior and generally speaking, mob behavior is not nuanced and it's not smart. You know, it's, it basically is ruled by emotion and the prevailing emotion is anger and justifiably so. A lot of people are angry and they'll take it out on anyone who's perceived to not be on their side, whether they are or they aren't. I, I think that's true. I, I just don't, but I mean... I think that's I think you're right, but I don't think there's any way to deal with that and not immediately go back to the silencing effect because I feel like it's like there is is you know are false rape rape accusations a thing? Yes, they are a extraordinarily tiny minority in comparison to the numerous women that have been raped, it reported it and were never believed and were ignored or were given death threats or were so you know, I mean, so what I'm hearing from you and your friend, that doesn't invalidate your friend at all. I'm not in any way claiming that that's not that. It's just, yeah. I don't, I don't, I worry when we talk immediately about we need to bring in nuance because of course I'm all about nuance, as you know, like that's very important to me. But on the other hand, I feel like nuance quickly becomes code for, you know, like there's some things that we won't be able to address in a nuanced way because there has been such a wall of silence that was just complete shame and repudiation of the woman for so long 
that nuance just doesn't permit that. You know sure. what I'm saying? And I mean, I guess the so. only way to chalk this up is to just say this is collateral damage for a movement that's, yes. you know, generally the, the doing blame good is things. The initial there's, men. Like, there's a lot of friends, collateral damage. Your initial men. Is, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's so. That, that's to me. Like, the blame yeah. is shitty initial men, not your friend who got caught in the blowback. Um, that's, that's the thing. Um, so what you say, I mean, what you're describing sucks. Like, of and, course. and it's been very difficult to me because as you know, I'm very protective of my friends. Like, and I don't think any of my friends who've had their lives ruined have really done anything more wrong than any human being in their, like well, every like single it, yeah. person in their life can point to something that they did that if it were posted publicly and a mob had access to it, that they could easily have their lives ruined over that thing. Like any, every single person in the world, I think if you contextualize and frame something that they did properly could have their lives ruined. And so in this particular case, you know, this is about abuses of power by men. And so those are the specific things that are being framed. But in the court of public opinion, if you put a spotlight on the worst thing that you've ever done, like, I think that that would be enough to get anyone removed from whatever job that they have immediately, you know, in a similar atmosphere to the one that we have. Am I wrong? Can uh, I'd have to think about that. I mean, I guess conceivably. I do want to point out that the common like, element, by the way, in what you said is Facebook. So if as, oh, yeah, as I no do, question. you turn away from Facebook, no question. then we have much less problem. I mean, when I was <laughs> when I was like 12 or 13, like I threw, my friend and I threw snowballs at a moving car. It was like incredibly dangerous and stupid. And You're not going to lose because you threw snowballs at and a car. And we probably endangered the life of a person driving mm. a big 80s sedan. But like, you know, and then he drove down our, our driveway and, and chased us into the woods and yelled at us a bunch and we learned our lesson. But like, we never but did you that again. You wouldn't lose your job. For, but, see, but that's what I'm saying though. You wouldn't lose your job because you threw snowballs at someone you were attending. Okay, but what, like, if, but what if the person who was in the car told a very personal story about how their life, you know, was changed that day by almost dying in a car because some kids threw snowballs at their car? Like if it was personalized, and we really listen to the story of the person in the car, people might empathize with that person in the car and they might say, you know what, you're right. This person has never really come to terms with the damage that they did by throwing snowballs at that car when they were 12. I mean, I'm sure they would, but see, the problem here is that in the equivalent situation that we're talking about, these people are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, and they're not throwing snowballs at someone. You know what I mean? Like, you're, you're talking about being a kid. If you're throwing rocks at someone when you're in your 30s at a car, then yes, you, that is potentially problematic. But throwing snowballs when you're 12? I, I don't know. I think that's a pretty big stretch to get to the idea All that right, it's going to reach you. I'll give you a better example. Um, you guys remember the whole the whole perfect girl thing that happened however many five how can we forget six years ago so we were we were in a you know we were in a relationship for you know i don't know some number of months it was very serious while it lasted uh and then it ended and obviously i was very very so much so that i could not do a podcast for years after our relationship ended because i was just so sad and ashamed that the relationship ended but you know i did try to keep in touch with her so i would text her like once a month for months I would once a month, I would just check in. I would go, you know, just want to see if you're doing okay. I was thinking about you like those, those type of things. And in our, the very last interaction that we ever had, she made it clear to me that she felt like unsafe because I was texting her once a month just to check in. You know, I wasn't, I was just trying to be as nice and uh, unharmful as possible, but also letting her know that I was still around if she wanted to talk or whatever. But she perceived that as, you know, some kind of attack of me just, 
not leaving her completely alone forever. So, you know, under some interpretation, she would say that like, that I was, you know, bothering her or something like that, even though from her perspective, from my perspective, I was just trying to keep in touch and see if we could rekindle things and being very hands-off, like again, just a text once a month. Do you, do you think that would keep you, that story could be made, could be personalized in such a way that you could lose your job over it? Yeah, I think that if, if she told the story from her perspective, uh, saying that like I was a constant presence making her feel threatened by never, you know, leaving her alone forever. Like, yeah, I think that she could frame it in that way. Absolutely. Story, what do you think about this? So, I mean, I definitely understand where Russ is coming from. I will, I will tell you guys this story, which I think, you know, puts me, uh, you know, as, as is, I guess, slightly predictable, like slightly more on Russ's end of things, but very much kind of not entirely. I don't know. So when the I did it thing was happening. So, I mean, the, the, my experience with the Me Too movement was, you know, was interesting because it literally broke, uh, as you may recall, like the weekend of my wedding. Um, and so I'm like going on our like mini honeymoon <laughs> and there's just all of like appalling stories of sexual harassment and abuse and whatever. And I'm just like, yeah, this is, this is really unpleasant timing. Like not, you know, it's, it's not in comparison to the, like, you know, the harm that's being talked about. So like, this is a very first world problem that I'm complaining about, but I'm like, if, uh, you know, on all the weekends of all the years and all the lives for this to break, it's like, you know, oh, let's look on my Facebook in the middle of my honeymoon. Yep, more horrific things in the arena of sex and romance and love. Wonderful. Uh, I'm I'm feeling great. So, you know, and and in the midst of that, you know, as I often do, um, you know, because I felt like it was an important moment and powerful and something that, you know, I, I moped about for 24 hours about the timing and then I'm like, okay, suck it up. And then I started crafting a post in my mind and I was going to write. And for a long time, I mean, for a month, and I have an outline of it still drafted, for about a month, I was going to write a very detailed post. And it was going to be called, um, I did, me too, we will. And it was going to go through and lay out in, in sequence you know, the things that I have done that I'm not proud of in this arena. And yes, like my gut reaction to what you say about like, can we all say that we haven't sexually harassed anyone is like, of course, I haven't done anything that I perceive as harassment. But I have definitely done some things in the arena of, you know, dating and romance and whatever else that I'm not at all proud of. The, the worst thing I've ever done in my life within this arena, you know, cheating on someone in, in high school and, and lying about it later. Um, there are a lot of things that I, as, as, you know, so I'm inclined to agree with Russ in a certain sense that there's things that everyone, if they are a conscious, cognizant human being, regrets in this arena. And, and it is reasonable, I think, given the history, as Greg talks about, to, to want a reckoning and an accounting for that. Um, as someone who, you know, the greatest wrongs that I ever have felt that I've experienced in my life have been in the arena of people not acknowledging the harm that they've done in this very specific sphere. So, so I totally get that, you know, and I have not experienced assault or harassment. I mean, I've experienced, I've experienced harassment. I mean, I have, and that was going to be part of the post too, is, is that I have experienced some harassment um, in different contexts. You know, a lot of it is in the context of bullying. A lot of it is in the context of, 
um, you know, people who would say they're joking around and probably were joking around because, you know, I wasn't in a position where I felt as threatened. And that was going to be part of the theme of the post, too, is that um, is recognizing that, like, some things that were done were done by men and some things that were done by women. And real talk, I probably never felt jeopardized except when the things were done by men, you know, that things that were yeah. done by women that I was uncomfortable or that I didn't like, um, other than, other than the cheating, you know, other than the cheating, um, which is in its own special category. And again, like is cheating. And I was even going to observe this when I admitted to cheating and lying about it. Like is cheating even like in this ballpark? I don't know. Personally, given that cheating is the worst thing anyone has ever done to me in my life, I think it should be, but, I, you know, but I understand how it is sort of categorically different. Like, I don't know. And obviously, like, I would posit that cheating in a marriage is very categorically different than cheating in a relationship. It's, it's funny, though, like, as broad as sexual misconduct what? is that I don't think anybody considers infidelity to be part of sexual misconduct, even though you would think. Right. Which would to be. me, again, is like totally crazy town. Right. right. Like, yeah. like the, if, that, if not that, what? Then, you know, right. but like, I but I understand. I agree. I understand still like why it's a gray area. So long story short, you know, this is all, this is all what it is. And, and, you know, is, is part of my experience with this, but, um, you know, and I was even going to, which I, I almost never do, you know, I was going to, going to have Alex sort of screen the post before it went up because I was like, you know, Hey, you're, you know, you're stuck with me now. We're married. Like this is our life together. And like, this is, you know, normally the right of refusal or whatever else is not something I afford anybody in these kinds of posts. But, um, but given that this is going to talk about my, you know, romantic history and my, you know, at least quasi sexual history and whatever, like, you know, um, you have every right to like, you know, say, Hey, don't say that or don't post that or don't do that before this goes up. So I was going to have her look at that. And, just before I actually got into drafting it and I had, you know, I had been really excited about writing it and really, you know, being excited is not quite the right word, but I, I thought it was really important. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and then I just had this moment where I was like, you know, do, do I really know what, the outcome of this is going to be like, do I really know in my heart of hearts, like, can I really be sure that this is a thing that however well-intentioned and however well, whatever, like I feel safe in doing. Um, and I just, you know, I just couldn't be sure. And so I didn't write it and I didn't post it and I'm, I'm really sad about it. And I still may at some point, you know, I, I still may, but like, I had every intention of doing it. I thought it was the right thing to do. I thought it was important. And I just couldn't pull the trigger because it felt like it felt like it could be just one of those, like however well-meaning or well-intentioned, like just a huge unforced error in my life of like, you know, um, that I would end up in some sort of situation. So I can't hear Russ's stories about his friends and these other people and say like, Oh, that's, that's crazy or that's an overreaction because the reason I didn't participate in this, even though I thought it was really important and really meaningful and really powerful is because of my own fear about that. And I don't have, you know, 
you know, I mean, most of the things, most of the category of things that I was talking about other than cheating would be, were things, you know, that I think are also powerful and important that are being complicit in, um, you know, complicit in other people's, you know, commentary and things like that and not doing enough to stand up and, and blah, 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 blah. Um, and, you know, pretty mild stuff, but stuff that I still feel bad about and I still feel there's a reckoning for. There was also someone who, you know, when they had the locker room talk moment of Donald Trump and all these people are like, I don't know what lockers he's been in. My mind immediately went back to a moment where I was definitely in lockers where Trump stuff would have been mild by comparison. And people definitely talked about, you know, planning to functionally rape people. And, you know, and there was one guy on my eighth grade baseball team, eighth grade, um, you know, who I basically made a comment, you know, he and I hated each other anyway, but he was talking about how he was going to get someone drunk and try to take advantage of her. And I made a comment about, you know, talking to the school administration about this. And he, you know, took a baseball bat between my legs and said that he was going to castrate me if I ever told anyone. And then like, you know, sort of went halfway with it, you know, to the point that it was pretty painful and pretty awful in the middle of the locker room anyway, as a little preview. And so, you know, and that was, that, that was, that was going to be on the me too side. It's like, you know, yeah. And like in future, did it work? Was I less likely to say things about people who made comments like that in future in those situations in a locker rooms after that? You bet. Um, and I'm not proud of that. And I should have been stronger and better than that, but such is the nature of, of physical abuse sometimes. So, you know, so I, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know where that leaves any of us. It's an important moment. It's something that I wholly support. And I think, you know, is really important. I agree that I'm not crying as much about the collateral damage for, for people compared to the most essential harm, but I also can understand the fear that people are feeling and the mob mentality because it affected me. Yeah, that's, um, that's thoughtful. I mean, it's funny, because I, I, I don't think we're actually, I don't really think that we're in disagreement. I mean, I, I, I basically agree. Um, I think that I, I think the problem is, you know, we all come at it from our own perspective. So for me, um, the see, because I never had and I think this is mostly just because I ended up being kind of a loser kid, as it turns out. Um, but I just I never had any relationship uh, that was, that had any kind of real intimacy or did, you know, till I was out of college. I mean, like that's, that's how long it was. So I was never in any kind of an opportunity to harass anybody at all. Um, and I, I definitely went through, as you and I have talked about story very, you know, the bullying that I went through was also pretty extreme. It wasn't at your level, mm -hmm. but there were moments where it got pretty close. Um, and it was physical in nature and I've also had my life threatened, right. uh, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, sure. and, uh, there were numerous stages where, um, I, I don't know. I just, I just look back at it and it just occurs to me that I just, I would actually be able to have my entire life thrown open and would not feel ashamed in any way of anything I've ever said to a woman ever. Um, and that doesn't, I'm not patting myself on the back, like, Hey, check out how awesome I am. Like that may just have been dumb luck. But I think I just have, I, I guess I'm just, I, I will fully admit that having pres present company accepted because what you guys said is very thoughtful. And I think, I think you guys are, the way you're describing it sounds totally reasonable to me. But that said, I have to admit that I have a very, very strong streak 
of judgmentalism about me, which tends to be anti-male. And it's clearly comes from my own personal experience. Um, I don't particularly like my own gender at all. <laughs> um, and I haven't ever because I've always, the, the abuse that I suffered came from men. The stuff that I saw being screwed up was almost invariably from men. And I've also been cheated on. So it's not like that, like, you know, women didn't do anything bad, but it just never reached that sort of level for me. And I, as I look around, I guess I just see these constant examples where it just never rises to the level of the negative stuff that men as a group, certainly not all men, but men as a group did. And so that's something I've really had to struggle with because I, I, you know, there is a judgmentalism that I know exists there when it comes to sort of sexual abuse or harassment or anything else where I just have zero sympathy at all. And I, 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 you know, and I guess that's, and that's, and I recognize that that's probably a limitation on my part, but I guess that's just my own, that's, that's my, that's my, 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 my glasses that I wear, you know, I want, I want to ask you guys about something that's related to this um, because being on the inside of this uh, LA stuff that's been going on, I've noticed kind of a schism between two different sides of this feminist perspective. So I feel like, you know, people that are relatively our age, which I guess just means older than millennials um, uh, have pretty much the same overall view that we do. Like that the movement is overwhelmingly good. Obviously there are a lot of bad men out there. Many of them are in positions of power and they're abusing people. But they wouldn't generalize to say that like every single man is a piece of garbage. No, because, no, 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 no. Because right. they're intellectually honest and they know that like you, sure. these kind of generalizations, generalizations are never true. Right. However, I've seen a lot of language from people of the millennial age specifically um, and a lot of articles posted that are basically just, I'll, I'll read you the title of one article that was posted that's um, reminiscent of this. It's just, how, if you're a man, to deal with the fact that you're probably trash? Now, you know, maybe that's fair. Maybe that's a fair title of an article because as we've just discussed, many, 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 many men participate in rape culture to some degree. Um, but I think the philosophy behind this stuff is either called, I've heard it called third wave feminism. I've heard it called intersectionality. Um, and the tenets seem to be the following. Um, all white, white men specifically are garbage people. Um, it is impossible, and secondary to that, it is impossible to be racist or sexist against a white man. Like it's okay to hate them as a group of people for the, the, just the characteristics of their race and color without knowing anything about them. Um, because according to third wave feminism, you can only be racist against, um, right. people that you have a power right, dynamic right with that you, right. that you have control over in some right. sense. Right. And you can only be sexist against the gender that you have systemic control over. So in other words, it's completely acceptable to say all men are garbage or all white people are garbage because of that power dynamic. And like, I've also seen a ton of analysis of this and talking about how this is related to French postmodernist philosophy as put forward by uh, Foucault and Lacan and Derrida primarily. Um, and, and, their points of view are basically that every categorization and even our own language is just a vehicle for power structures to manipulate people. So in that, like the deconstructionists like Derrida, like they reject scientific classification because it's all just the white man trying to assert his view of the world on other people. 
um, language that we use. Like these people don't be believe in the dictionary, which is why they're trying to forcibly redefine words like racism and sexism. Um, I just want to know, because I know that A, the three of us, I think, are outliers in that all of us are, you know, on face, we're all cis white men, but I think that we are, of a group of any three white men you could choose, um, the least percentage participation in rape culture of any three white men I can think of. So <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to hear about whether you're okay with that kind of language. Because, I mean, Greg, you're a professor, you interact with people of this age all the time. Yep. I actually don't know if college age people are still millennials or not. I don't know where the cutoff is. Um, but it seems like, especially from, you know, people who get their information via Facebook, that there's a lot of what I would consider just straight scapegoating and hate speech, but it's acceptable because it's within the rubric of this third wave feminist philosophy. So, so yeah, so here's, oh boy, do I, so many things to say about that. Okay. So first of all, um, I'm going to say one thing that is supporting the argument that you that you're citing that the, you know, but then I'm going to say a couple of things that totally disagree with the implications of it, and will mostly agree with you. So, it is true, in my opinion, that you cannot be racist as such against uh, against the typical white male, and it is because of the power dynamic. You can be prejudiced against them, though. And that prejudice, eventually, if it was coupled with decades and decades of history, and if it's coupled with policies put in place to inculcate those things, and if it is supported by a massive corporate media structure that is approving of this concept, then it would eventually become something that could be as dangerous as current everyday racism and sexism. Right. So that's the distinction I would make. You can absolutely be prejudiced against white males. Like, absolutely you can. But you can't be racist against them because there just is no equivalent dynamic. And as long as you can have a widely, you know, as long as you can have essentially people talking about um, Colin Kaepernick and people like that as being sort of demonstrably dangerous and bad for society while looking at people like uh, Bill O'Reilly as being just a personality um, or Sean Hannity as being personalities that uh, have strong opinions, right? As opposed to someone who's supposedly being destructive because he peacefully takes a knee as compared to someone who engages in actual stochastic terrorism on a, on a regular basis. Um, as long as that continues to be the case, then you cannot, in my opinion, be racist against the sort of typical white male. So I agree on that score that you can be racist, but you can be prejudiced and prejudice is bad itself. So that has big problems. Okay, now I'm going to go completely in your side, Russ. So this reminds me, what you described reminds me of two stories and I was involved with both of them. First story happened actually at Brandeis when there was a guy who was a person in the graduate department, also a English graduate student, who I did not get along with at all, largely because he had a tendency to engage in this astonishingly black and white, non-nuanced thinking. I don't know if you guys remember at the time that there was this big thing called CLOG, which was basically a graduate organization at Brandeis that was trying to get healthcare for Brandeis graduate students, and did so in my view, with incredibly, incredibly for the time, extreme uh, processes that were totally ineffective. Like, I remember actually being at a board of trustees meeting for a debate thing and literally standing, having people from Clog who were outside the windows, like protesting, like, you know, like, like lying dead on the ground in coffins with people and stuff like that, right? 
Um, and I remember very distinctly then seeing on the email list, someone posting something to the effect of clog had its voice heard. And I'm like, okay, I was actually in the board of trustees meeting. Not only was your voice not heard, you were laughed at because what you were doing was ridiculous. You had just had a meeting with the administration about this subject where you had laid out five things and they had said, we agree with you on four out of the five things and we're going to get back to you on the fifth thing within the next couple of days. And literally the next day you're in front of the window protesting in coffins. So no, your voice did not get heard. You in fact, embarrassed yourself because I just couldn't take it anymore. Like, I'm like, I'm just not going to allow you to lie because I was actually there and I saw what happened. So in response to this, this one graduate student that I'm referring to had this big discussion about how I was, of course, a corporate sellout and I was a shill and I was carrying water for the administration because clearly that was what I like to do was, you know me, administrate Brandeis, Brandeis, Yehuda Reinhardt's water carrier. That's, that's, that was my name. Um, and, uh, and in the middle of that, he literally said, we got no discussion of organizations. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I just don't believe that organizations definitionally are evil because of it. And he came back with the phrase, which I've never forgotten, which is, you need to remember that by nature, organizations are fascistic. And I'm like, you are a moron and I will never listen to you again. Like, there is no other way to describe it. And he was quite serious. He's like, they're fascistic. Not nuanced like, well, if you were to follow those policies over a course of time, eventually it could lead to all organizations, okay? So organizations from now to the ACLU to flipping Antifa, right? Because it's an organization, it is by nature fascistic. That's just dumb, and that's what happens when you cast aside the potential of nuance, which is what I think that version of intersectionality that you're talking about does. Last story. Um, I'm on a panel at, and this is actually, I think, at NorwestCon a couple of years ago. Well, I, don't, I think it was NorwestCon. Anyway, I was on a panel with someone and we were talking about um, audio and we were talking about speech and recording and podcasting, which ironically, I know something about since we, you know. And so we were talking about podcasts and about voice and about structure and things like that. And we're going on and talking about it. And this person asked a question. They're like, you know, I was thinking about using, um, I was thinking about doing this stuff, but I only have like a rock band microphone. And like, I don't, I don't know whether that like from the game rock band. And I don't know whether that's okay. And, and so everyone was like, no, 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 that's fine. Like, that's a good starting place. And I said, I'm like, of course, like it's a good place to start. And you can definitely do that. I said, you know, over time, definitely, if you're able to work on improving the audio quality, you can definitely do that. Um, I said, just as in the process of, spe you know, giving speeches, it's important to be able to work on things like modulation and pace and stuff like that. This person on the panel literally says, not really in response to me directly, but a couple of minutes afterwards, how it's important that we not give the impression that there is a better way of speaking. That was the direct quote. Because that creates a masculine NPR version. That was directly the person's words. Masculine NPR version of proper speaking. And I was like, well, there are some methods of speaking, though, that are more effective than others as determined by literally two millennia of the study of rhetoric. And the person was like, well, but you need to realize at the time, I'm like, no, 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 no. I know something about teaching rhetoric, just a smidge. And I'm here to tell you that you cannot dismiss all of it because 
it's been around for a long time and it was started by being taught by white men who were the only ones who had access to this at the time. The reality is that these speaking styles designed by people like Martin Luther King, which comes as much from a Baptist and African-American tradition as it comes from an old white man tradition, but nonetheless, that tradition partly drew upon the rhetorical studies of people like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and those like that. Martin Luther King studied them. Martin Luther King is arguably the greatest speaker in the 20th century. I'm not going to go back and have an argument about whether he is. It's just a fact, okay? So like... That Those two stories to me are an example of what happens, Russ, when you get to the extreme of what you're talking about, which is you not only throw the baby out with the bathwater, but you like execute the baby en route. You know, like you just, you just chop the baby up into bits in the process because clearly there, it's claiming that, uh, you know, that, and that there's a danger in that, you know, that some, that, that all speaking is equal is not true. Clearly saying that organizations by their nature are definitionally fascistic is not true. You know, these are just not true things. And so for people to claim that they are and then cover it in a wave of theory and and that is dangerous and that is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So more or less, I agree with you a thousand percent about that part of it, that that's just dumb. And whether it's millennials doing it or whether it's others, I don't know. I don't get that impression from my students, honestly. I think, I think there are some millennials that are sort of the Ivy League millennials that might be more tempted to do this. But honestly, the millennials that I run into, my students, I don't get that feeling from them at all. Well, I, I, I very want to hear what Story has to say about this, but I, yes, just I as, a quick, as, a quick response, as a quick response, I will say that this uh, worldview that I'm awkwardly trying to describe is like extremely common and pervasive and is almost the default for people of a certain age group everywhere. And, and, and this is my, this is my, from my perspective, like this is very, very, very I have widely not run into that with my, I've not run into that with millennials where I am, to be honest with you. And at least not in my, not in my school environment. I don't know. But it, but it may be different. I mean, I don't. I, and again, I, I mean, I wish we could all live in the world of stories Facebook feed that is a Shangri La of like intellectual <laughs> nuance and debate and information. But my like students where, have other problems. But where I'm sitting in Los Angeles, it is, you know, and like I go out of my way to try to cultivate um, a good mix of different points of view on my Facebook, at least. You know, like if somebody's like uh, spewing really heavy duty right wing stuff, like I don't ban them or unfriend them because I want to hear what they have to say and once in a while I'll engage them and I'll go, hey, maybe does this idea contradict with this other thing that you said? And we'll, I'll try to engage them politely. And I do the exact same thing with people who are saying like incredibly obtuse things that like an entire race and class of people is garbage. Like that's never true, right? right. You, you right. intellectually realize that that can never be true. Right. But you know, and it's it's arguably completely futile to try to have any kind of reasonable discussion. But again, this is in my Facebook. This is it's not Facebook. Facebook. The problem is Facebook. <laughs> yes. Leave Facebook. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> no, Story, what do you think about this? So I have I have a lot of things to say other than just lauding how great Facebook is, because um, Facebook is the best. But uh <laughs> that's just apparently my Facebook. Anyway, um so for one thing, the rhetoric thing that you brought up, Greg, is really fascinating because APTA has actually created a new speaker scale in light of some of the things that you're talking about. And the speaker scale explicitly forbids people from taking quality of speaking into account what? when grading speeches. Um, because this thing that you're talking about, I wish I were. Oh my uh, God. This thing that you're talking 
And even when I've judged in the last couple of years and I've talked about like rhetorical things, like people will listen to me nicely because I have a lot of experience, but people have definitely expressed a little bit of discomfort of like, you know, well, we can't really talk about speaking style because that's not really a thing that we aspire to. And it's like, what the I, what? you know, as, as, as you know, like I have talked, you know, taught so many people, you have taught so many people, like, yes, it is true that the manifestation of how many people's expectations and focusing on things like vocal fry and other things like manifest as extremely sexist. The response to be, therefore, the notion that there is, there are better ways to speak stylistically is totally unthinkable and we should not even approach it Ugh. is absurd. absurd. And I had, so I had someone on my team who basically was like, you know, who, you know, he was not, and he was, you know, he was a, a straight male. He was not white, but he was a straight male. He was not, you know, someone who is typically in a vocally oppressed category or something. And he just said, I don't understand why speaking style matters. It shouldn't matter. And I was like, because we're not reading it into the record. Like the way that you're talking, debate could just as easily be a competitive F sequential essay contest. Right. And he's like, yeah, I don't see a problem with that. And I'm like, well, but that's not what this is, right? It is speaking just as you can't describe the arc of a bowling trajectory that would go down the lane and get a strike every time in lieu of actually bowling a damn strike every right, time, right? Right, and so, right, and, and to it's me, a good you know, like, right. And so to me, like, I am sympathetic in many ways to, like, trust me, I am not someone who is like, going to stand on principle for keeping institutions for the sake of institutions, right? I don't like memes of institutions. And I am very sympathetic to the idea of like, burn it all down and start over. I get it. I think that's great. <laughs> what I worry about is when the burn it all down is concretely throwing away the very few things that we might have left to rebuild something positive. There you go. And 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 I do think that, like, the existence of cis white males, like, yes, I am super biased in this because I am one. But, like, I do think that the existence of straight cis white males, like, is not innately anathema to, um, to a hopeful future. Because I believe in a hopeful future, and I don't think my idea of a hopeful future is innately laden with sexism and racism. Like, am I sometimes less aware than I should be of things? that may be oppressive that I need to be reminded of and think about? Absolutely. Um, 100% totally on board with that, totally behind that. But my existence in society, like, you know, at a certain point I have to say, like, what is the recourse? What is the recourse? Because is the recourse that we should all be shot at dawn? Is the recourse that we should literally be eliminated? Like, I could entertain an argument of that being a just solution. Like I literally can, I literally can say that could be a just solution, but I really don't think that that's what anybody actually thinks that they're advocating for or should right. be advocating for. And so at the point where we're not going that far, like what, what is the mileage that is being served? And I think, you know, part of where the rubber hits the road and I don't want this to be 2016 rehash or whatever, but like, I saw a lot of this argumentation being manifest with the like, 
you know, the arguments about Bernie and Hillary to a certain extent. And it's not that that's the only place for it. And, and maybe I shouldn't even take the conversation in this direction because it would probably be more productive in other directions. But it's, it's the same kind of thing of like, whatever you think the roots are of the Trump phenomenon and the situation and people saying like, you know, no, these people are deplorable racists who are all unforgivable and whatever. And I know that your belief is a little closer to that than Russ's and mine, Greg. But probably. like, at a certain point, you know, my perspective on this is, you know, whatever it is, whatever the voting populace that voted for Trump, you know, it's a little less than half of whatever, a quarter or a right, sixth right, of the population right. actually votes, whatever it is. Right. Like, at a certain point, even if it were theoretically true that all of those people are irredeemable, like, I'll go with it, fine. Maybe every single one of them is an irredeemable racist. Like, if that's true, what hope do you have? Like, because if you're not at least trying to convert those irredeemable racists, like, then we're totally screwed because until they all die, like, your only recourse is literally waiting for them all to die. Because it's too much of a population that is too inculcated in voting, that has too much influence and power, that is too bolstered by what's just happened. Like, your only option is wait for them to die. And like, I'm sorry, maybe it's the pacifist in me, but I just don't think wait for them to die is a super viable solution for any category of people, no matter how bad they are. Well, and, you know, I also don't believe in the death penalty. So I don't think that even waiting right, for right, like right, unrepentant right. murderers to die is a solution. So, right. so that's, that's what I'm kind of left with, with this. And like, you know, the speech thing is an extreme example because yes, as you and I and Russ certainly all believe, like the power of rhetoric and voice is what is the great equalizer in playing field. And yes. as you point out in the case example has often been used to great effect by traditionally marginalized and oppressed groups. And yes. yes, I think it is horribly destructive to say because there are systemic problems in the past with judging speech rounds, we don't think speech is important or that you can make quality differentiations anymore ever again. This would be a great loss to civilization to make this conclusion, and I don't support it. I um, totally, and similarly, I totally. like, yeah, most, most straight white men may be trash or may have elements of trash in them. To me, as, as should always be the case with people, again, not believing in the death penalty, is what's our, what's our step process for redemption? Not necessarily redemption that we forgive them or say that everything's okay or say that they're even on an equal playing field, but what's our step process for getting people on board with a better world? Because that's the only hope that we have. Like, okay, great, they're trash, we're all trash, fantastic. Now can we turn the page to day two where we, we talk about things being better than trash because otherwise you're just waiting for people to die and I don't think that's the solution. That's, that's very well said. I want to hear Russ's answer, but I, I, I agree with you entirely about that. The only thing I would say, this, this speech thing is so horrific to me. I don't even know where to begin. Like there's, there's so, I mean, it's funny, it's funny <laughs> yeah. to go from being back in 1995 where I was trained and started to train my judges, as you guys know, literally talking about listening to, to men and women give identical speeches and uh, giving, you know, giving the man strong, powerful comments and calling the woman shrill right. and bitchy. I, I was talking about mm -hmm. training, you know, back in the day. So it's, it's funny that we go from that to now we need to literally ignore what rhetoric does as if the speaking styles of people from, uh, you know, the, the, the gifted ability of people to be able to do readings from Virginia Woolf all the way to, you know, Michelle Obama giving arguably a better speech than her husband, who's one of the great speakers we've had in, in mm -hmm. politics um, at the Democratic National Convention, is just so 
Oh God, I can't even begin. But anyway, it would be a five more member reports for that. But I do want to say that um, <laughs> the one thing I want to say about that though is I my sense is that what most people would say who are responding to this is this is not a thing they care about as much. In other words, the worry that white men are going to feel like they don't know what to do is not some, is their, their, their attitude to be like, we'll worry about that problem later. Once we worry about the problems of the people who have been figuratively or literally lynched for, you know, centuries mm -hmm. so as to accommodate white people's feelings. You know, and, and sure. I am sympathetic and to the argument to a degree. I, and I'm, by the way, sympathetic to a degree, but I agree with you in general terms. I just think that that's probably the response that they would give is that like what you're saying is not wrong. It's just not mm -hmm. like whatever, like, yes, maybe so. Now can we get back to not lynching metaphorically or otherwise marginalized communities, you know? And, and I want to let Russ, Russ into this in, in just a second, but just as a very quick response to that, I, I am also sympathetic to that argument, and I don't disagree necessarily, but what I am talking about is not make me feel better for being a white man. It is literally like, so what are you, what do you, what do you recommend doing with us, right? Like, because, you know, and, and maybe that's, maybe there were solutions in that article, as tongue-in-cheek as it was or wasn't, about like, you know, how do you deal with the fact that you're crashed? Like, I mostly think listen. even that article, they would say mostly listen. Right, right. Probably yeah. still had solutions and things yeah. that can actually be done. Yeah. And if that's the conversation point, great. That's fine. I'm fine with that. Um, but I, you know, but, but I do think that some of these things approach waiting for people or institutions or traditions to die wholesale. Now, if we're talking about militarism, great. But if we're talking about like swaths of people, then, you know, at a certain point, I think that, that it may be doing more harm. Than Russ, what say you? Uh, I have two responses to all of this stuff. <laughs> the first thing Point is, one. <laughs> in terms of the rhetoric thing, which obviously we're all big fans of rhetoric, we think that it's one of the few remaining saving graces that we have is that we have the ability to communicate and work out our problems with each other. Um, this movement, in particular, does not particularly value rhetoric or free speech. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, you know, we've had discussions kind of around this for many, many months where we talk, where I would specifically talk about how there's a clearly a fascist tendency on the right wing right now in that they don't like the freedom of the press. They don't like freedom of speech. There's misinformation anywhere. But I feel like there is absolutely also uh, a fascistic inclination on the left in the we're going to ban people from that we whose who's, uh, point of view we don't agree with from speaking on college campuses that... Uh, if you go backwards into the postmodern roots of this philosophy that like your speech is literally irrelevant because all it is is a mechanism for a power dynamic. So whatever you're saying doesn't matter as much as what race you are, what sex you are, and what your origin is. Um, and those are, whether they're on the minds of every single person who believes in this, that they're like part and parcel of the philosophy. So it, the philosophy and the, the movement does not value free speech at all. Um, and that's a big problem that I have with it. And I think it's also combined with the problems that we have with social media, that social media is designed to make us worse at communicating with each other, except for stories feed, which has been somehow protected <laughs> by Except for God. the Shangri-La yeah. stories fire. It, the the divine Facebook feed of story. Like other than his Facebook feed, like we are slowly being <laughs> conditioned to be worse at communicating with each other, to be worse at empathizing with each other. And the consequence of this is that people of this persuasion think that only 
uh, cis white female feminist can understand the problems of cis white female feminists and lesbian black feminists mm. have a separate category of problems that no one can understand other than uh you know lesbian uh femi- black feminists i'm so glad you and, brought this up i'm so glad you brought this and up and so yeah. and like obviously like if you break it down for even five seconds like you get that there's an infinite regression there that you can go well there are an infinite number of categories so uh, a black uh, you know, a feminist who has problems may not have the same problems as a Southern black feminist who may not have the same problems as a, a black feminist who's dealt with breast cancer. Like there are a, a million categories that you can parse these things into. And the, the conclusion of all of this is that nobody understands anybody. Nobody can empathize with anyone else's problems. Nobody can help anybody else with their situation because we are all just a series of uh, races and sexes and occupations and we're not people and obviously I object to that because here's the other okay and here's the second thing I know you guys have a lot to deal with already the second thing is it just I, and I'm it, this is just unfortunate for me there's no solution to this it just irks me that I'm being told by millennials that I'm the face of evil I mean for well, that, that's a, objectively true, though. It I mean, hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I am. I am that's the face that's, of that's sure. sort of objectively true. But. Like one, I mean, besides the fact that I've like painstakingly led a conscientious life, like I've never cheated on anyone. I've never had sex outside of a monogamous relationship. I never was in a relationship at all until college because I was so afraid of, I, I was always aware that women are being bothered all the time. And like, I didn't want to be part of the problem of women being bothered. So I opted to not interact with women in that way. And then they were just my friends. Um, and that, existed for a very long time. So like, I'm have always been aware of this, have always gone out of my way to try to not make the problem worse. And then, you know, 30 years later, a millennial's like, you're a piece of shit. I'm like, okay, well, I guess then work and real life doesn't make a difference. But even on top of that, like if you go to the right wing fascists, I don't even get to be a white person for the white, the right wing fascists. Cause I'm not a white person. According to them, I'm a different ethnicity that doesn't count as white. So I just feel like I'm getting it from both Otherwise, sides. Otherwise, you'd be ready to sign up with right-wing fascism. <laughs> and then you're like, damn it, they won't let me I'm in. like, neither <laughs> group of fascists likes right. me. Right, if you just embrace <laughs> right-wing <laughs> fascism, this would be no problem. If you just, you know, if you just embraced, you know, yeah. that's so like... That's fascist, if you are a fascist who will take Russ in... Like, where... If you're the fascist group that appreciates a large portion of our listenership are fascists, clearly. They're, they're definitely, there's a demographic. Where are the reasonable fascists? We are the Venn diagram of fascists. <laughs> so that's it. That's all I have to say. Oh, my yeah. God. It, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny, though, because now, see, I remember back in the day, you've had some problems with millennials in general, Russ, to be fair, for some time. Like, you, you've talked many times about feeling like, why are... are why are they so young and occasionally stupid? Like, I mean, not all of them, but I think it's fair to say that there was a group of people that you, you know, you didn't necessarily respond to the, uh, to the new kids on the block. Let us say. I mean, look, um, I, I understand. I'm a curmudgeon. Like I'm, I'm absolutely of the philosophy of George Carlin that like, I love people, but I dislike groups. I just don't, I don't like groups of people. I like individuals. I find them fascinating. I love interacting with them. The minute they become a group, they just get dumber, like in aggregate. They just, it's dumber. And so I, yes. So I have many, had many problems with many different groups and I have struggled my entire life to like confidently affiliate myself with any group ever. 
I think the Brandeis debate team is number one on the list of groups that I really liked a lot. Yeah. And yeah. I had my problems with them too. You know, it's like I couldn't avoid it, but, uh, but they were number one for sure. But I mean, like, I, I think one of the things I would say though is I, I, I do think that some of this really plays into where you happen to be. And I think that your, your environment, sort of the LA improv scene is not the default environment <laughs> you'll be shocked to hear. Like it, it's, and, and none of our environments technically are. It's just that the experience, the millennials that I teach are just not like this. Um, I, I don't think the millennials that I, I think they have other issues sometimes. I think sometimes the millennials that I teach are, you know, can sometimes be a little too passive and sometimes do not sort of react fast enough to, to feeling like, hey, wait, like I'd like to see more political activity from the, from the student body that I teach, right? But, but, what I, but I do get a sense of goodwill for the most part and I don't get a sense that they're just going to jump down people's throats. Like they, you know, the whole, they, they have not been hit by this sort of worst sins of intersectionality such as it is, right? And so I, I don't think that what you're saying is invalid. Like I, I, I believe you that you're probably inundated it. When a uh, story, when you were uh, trying to figure out the mute button back there, we were trying to get back on. I was talking about how Andy Terrell talked about this years and years ago and about how he felt like he was just absolutely surrounded by super leftist, like practically socialist. And I'm like, you realize that you're an undergraduate at Brandeis, right? Like that is not the standard. Like most people are not going to sit there and start yelling about how many, you know, organizations can divest themselves from Israel on the head of a pin, right? Like that, that's not the standard approach. The fact that the Ben Branzels of the world, dear Ben, um, you know, the, those people are not the norm. So when you get outside of that little bubble, right, and you get outside to the world writ large, then all of a sudden I think the environment is considerably different. So in a way what we need is as often, I think I, I have a tendency to fall on this side. We do need something a little bit more in the middle because it sounds to me like you're, you're dealing with a situation which is pretty way over on one side of the ledger there, Russ, and probably not in a positive way. But I can tell you that the other side of the ledger, which is most of middle America, the kind of, you know, the, the hell is the problem? They shouldn't be protesting anyway. Stand up and salute the flag, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know that, whereas a lot of people are like, are the NFL people protesting enough? You know, whereas the most of middle America is like, how dare you kneel in front of the flag? You know, like they are not where we are at all. Like they are just in a different world entirely. So figuring out a way to be able to reach across those areas and not sort of take one of them as representative is probably important for everybody to sort of take into account, it seems to me. So. But, but what if those are just the the prevailing mindsets that are going to take over. Like what if that is the trend is that all you have, like the loudest voices win because of the social media atmosphere, like the, the largest narcissists, the loudest voices, the strongest emotional pleas, like those are the things that get the most attention. And they're, but, but those are powerful, emotional pleas, they're powerful right? trillion dollar mechanisms supporting the amplification of those kind of. Oh voices. yeah. I agree with you there, but the, but there are countervailing emotional mechanisms, right? There there are countervailing emotional forces. There are a lot of people yelling like, "I'm going to boycott the NFL because how dare those ungrateful blacks kneel in front of the flag!" Like, and they would literally use language of that that, that racist. Oh yeah, yeah, right? no, both both of those things, like yeah. the, that thing and the other thing, they're they're both being they're amplified both 
to the detriment of everyone in the middle. And do you know how weird it is for me to be advocating for like the middle <laughs> and reasonability? Welcome like, what a, to the world of reasonability, my friend. What it am only I getting old? Years. Is, is I have a kid and now I'm like, everybody just calm down. I, I told need to you. just have make you sure wait. the roads are still working so that we can all get where we're going. <laughs> I predict three years from now, Story and Alex welcome a delightful new child in the world. Story shows up, buzz cut, like, hey guys. <laughs> I'm yeah, that will never happen. happen to story. No, but the, the thing is though, yeah. here's the, here's the truth though. That will never happen. Like, like we will never abandon. The truth is that we do change, but not as much as people think. Like we don't, you, you don't abandon what you are. I've always had sort of a predilection towards reasonability, but at the same time, I, I think that it's, it's shaded with more it's shaded with more, it's, it's shaded more as you get older. It's, it's, it's pushed in a different direction. So I feel now more inclined to be sympathetic to the views that, you know, story you might have advocated, you know, five years ago. I might be more inclined to approve of that now or understand it now, given some of the other things. I'm not going to agree with you on everything. We're not going to agree on all things. But I, I'm going to be sort of tempted to do that. And Russ, you may be sort of shading a little bit more towards the reasonability side of things. Just because as you get older, more perspective gets developed over time. I think our challenge is to be able to reach as many people as we can using the power of rhetoric, screw people who think it doesn't matter, um, to be able to reach people where they are and, and to sort of recognize the power of that and not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like even in the literary field, you know, I can say that I don't want the only people that we read continue to be, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien and Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov. Like obviously, I, they're, they're clearly those should not be the only people that we read. But I will not throw away J.R.R. Tolkien and Robert Heinlein because I think you know, they are enormously and critically important. I also think Octavia Butler is incredibly important. And I also think Ursula Le Guin is incredibly important. And I also think N.K. Jemison is incredibly important and so on. I think many of these people are important, but I think that you can approve of one without removing entirely the other. So I think that there's going to be more of that, like broadening our circles over time. And that's what I think needs to be done, is to be able to broaden our circles, it, I would say. And that's, yeah. So, so it starts yeah, with story. I mean, he has to broaden the circle to New Orleans first. And Uber. <laughs> so just do that. Step no, by step. I mean, yeah. No, I, I, I think it's, um, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm really glad that Russ brought up the, you know, the sort of extreme side of intersectionality issue because that's something that I, um, that Alex and I have actually talked about a lot where we see some of this, you know, cause you know, we have probably more contact with generation Z coaching a college debate team as, as we're working on. I mean, I guess it's equal to Greg, Greg's teaching, you know, but I think my, the population we see at Tulane probably fits a little bit more into this um, further left and also still at the same time coming a little bit from more privileged perspective um, than maybe the the folks you're seeing at St. John's. And, you know, to me, it's like, yeah, what is, what is the resolution, right? Because at a certain point, like, it is perfectly reasonable and fair game to be upset about all of these various things and their history and their problems and whatever. But it also is good to have an end game of some sort of solution. And the solution can be pie in the sky or it can be crazy. It can be hard day ontology and everybody 
becoming pacifist or whatever. Like I'm not going to be one to stand here and say your solution has to be super practical, but it is clear that the devolution of no one can understand anyone else because of their specific experience and categories is no progress, right? It's Correct. like just we're all in an isolationist bubble. It's also and anathema a believer, to writing, by the way, story, if I could just jump in for right. a second. Well, yeah. It's also yeah. anathema, anathema to anathema. any good right. writing ever. So, <laughs> Yeah, to writing, to communication, to the concept of society. I mean, it's, it's really, it yeah. really gets us into trouble. Yeah. So, you know, so... And it's the same thing of like, you know, yes, you don't have to worry about white men's feelings, but it would be good if there were a solution other than death for what to do with the white men. And so, like, you have know. Have we thought about this like, death? <laughs> right. So, you know, so like that's, that's where I'm kind of at with this is it's like, you know, yes, burn down everything, but to create something right or like change everything but not literally change existence you know and and part of this is the bias of believing in an ordered universe right like i believe that things happen you know not that everything happens for a reason or some naive interventionist thing but i do believe that like the world exists for a reason and one of the favorite things that i always say is there's a reason we weren't all born on our individual planet right like we are the the exercise that we are engaged in in this lifetime on this planet, in my opinion, is one about collectivity. And yes, groups are frustrating. They're hard. They're difficult. Russ hates them. Like it is hard to get along with people. It is hard to live with people. It is supposed to be hard. That is the work that we're trying to do on this planet. That's what life is all about. And so, you know, I do worry that a lot of these hyper individualistic or hyper, you know, small groupy kind of things end up devolving into something where it's not acknowledging that we're on a planet with lots of people and we need to do something with those people um, that hopefully make things better for all of the people. Or maybe it doesn't make things better for all of the people. Maybe I am down with only making things better for traditionally oppressed groups. That's fine. But it still should have like some role in that for everybody. I, um, I agree with you a thousand all, percent. Yeah, I, I agree. I just want to say I agree with you a thousand percent that one of the critical things is the necessity of community, the necessity yeah. of community yeah. and not small micro communities of two people each. Right. I think it, a community is critically, critically important. In fact, the resistance currently in this country is community building and it's community building across demographics. The community resistance does not work with like about, you know, with three people, it works with a broad, broad cross section. So yeah, just wanted to say, yeah. I agree with you. And, right. And, 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 and here's the thing, right? Like, even if, even if you don't agree with me about this from a pragmatic perspective, like the result of people who are totally disconnected from community is that they become mass shooters, right? Like, like yep. if yep. you don't, you know, unless you're going to slaughter all of them, like if you don't come up with something to do with them, like they will find something to do with themselves. And yep. like the most destructive people in our world have always come from a level of total isolation and total disengagement. And yep. like, you know, and so, so there's going to need to be something that is engaging. So yes, I am all for saying, and I know the irony of saying this on a podcast with two other white males, but like, I'm all for saying that you know, traditionally oppressive people should listen more, should do more, should take a back seat. But at the point where it becomes like there is no role and no place, then I think that's that's gonna that's going to lead to problematic outcomes. I, I agree. I think that's true. 
Um, I also think it's true that we are now uh, at 90 minutes. <laughs> um, so we have, um, this is what happens when we get into a cool discussion, but it's been a little while and, yeah. and you know, this was something which was on yeah. our mind. Yeah. And those, those of you who are new to the MEP report, uh, if you listen to the 150 previous plus episodes, you will see that there's sometimes where we talk about completely goofy, silly stuff and other times when we're more serious. This is, this is more serious. <laughs> like, I mean, this is just, you know, this is, this is how it is. Um, but, uh, one of the, and actually all of you listening are part of your own community. You're part of the MEP community. I'm not being hyperbolic, like literally your community. So if you agree that we do have more things we have to think about in terms of solutions to approach that includes all of us, and you want to throw some of those our way, you should please do that. Uh, if you agree that Toastmasters objectively are a terrible speaking group and that we can't allow those people to set the standard for rhetoric and therefore rhetoric must be approved of, then yeah. you definitely need to just exterminate some people. Can it be the Toastmasters? <laughs> God. We want to make clear. This is the they're gonna be like, I rise in strong opposition, but first I want to tell the anecdote. We're like, God damn it, come on, you can do it. But please let us know at metreport.com. Check us out at uh, there and please continue to check in with us throughout the year as we will continue to release shows on a regular basis talking philosophy, politics, humor, and otherwise just silly things. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Please, yeah. please not death. Not the death. Right. Not death. Other solutions. Not death. I figured it would take more than two generations for us to be back here again. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last time I saw old man emu, he was chasing a female emu, as he shot past, I heard him say, She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she could run the pits of a kangaroo. She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she could run the pits of a kangaroo. Well, there is a moral to this ditty, um, better da 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 da. Thrush can sing, but he ain't pretty, um, better da 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 da. Duck can swim, but he can't sing, nor can the eagle on the wing. Emu can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can round the pits on the kangaroo. Well, the kookaburra laughed and he said, It's true, um, better da 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 da. 